0: Welcome to three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel podcast network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We have news from all three of uh, Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. Rafa holding a press conference today in Mallorca. We'll get to that first, what he said over there. Novak Djokovic and the U.S. Open Uh, The U.S. Open organizers have confirmed that they are not going to appeal the U.S. government to uh, find an exemption of uh, Djokovic's for Djokovic's immigration status into the United States. Uh, As we stand, you currently cannot enter the United States on a regular visa if you're not vaccinated. We'll get into that. And then finally, a little bit of news from Federer. He has uh, given an interview and has updated us on his status. But okay, Nadal, Mallorca press conference foot ablation operation uh, has occurred and it, it it seems like it's been successful. And that is kind of the news is that uh, he is training. He's back on the grass and he has confirmed his intention to play Wimbledon. Um, With that being said, I, I, you know, he didn't say I'm playing. He said, I want to play. And in that respect, I'm struggling to see, and understand exactly what we learned from this press conference, other than the operation was not a disaster. It did not not work, right, Amy? It did not not work.
2: And two negatives equal a positive. So, (laughs) uh, you know, as my mother says, how the worm has turned. Last year, we were looking at Novak Djokovic potentially winning the calendar Grand Slam. Now that's in play for Nadal. And he is out on a grass court practicing and held a press conference saying that he has intentions to play Wimbledon. So all you can do is listen to the player. And right now, it seems like he's going to be in the field.
1: It's exciting. I think it's, it's, it's intriguing. Of course, <laughs> I like your mother saying you're right where the <laughs> black line went. Um, Nadal, yeah, there he is. And, and all these comments i looking. Obviously, had this press conference system. Almost, it's almost preemptive. Because otherwise, there'd be a lot of inquiry. So it's like, here, here's what I have to say. Here's what's going on. Now let me practice and see where it's at. And it's still going to be day-to-day, his intention to play.
0: Yeah, let me read a direct quote here. He says, uh, my foot situation must be evaluated day after day. So at this moment, I don't have the certainty of being able to play. I just know that I want to play the tournament, but we also must be careful.
2: Interesting. Well, it's like a game of telephone because I was upstairs with my kids and my husband called up to me and my husband works in sports journalism and said, Nadal's in for Wimbledon. So <laughs> I, I automatically and then I started reading the headlines. But if you read the headlines very carefully, it says Nadal announces his intention to play. But look, he's not one to um overstate things or, or put the cart before the horse. So if he says that he has an intention to play, I believe that he will make every effort and that it would be unlike him to pull the rug out from the organizers of Wimbledon, especially in a year like this, where they desperately need him because of the Russian player and Belarusian player ban.
0: Yeah. Great, great point, Amy, about, about the fact that he's held this press conference. Now it feels like regardless of if maybe the, you know, tendency to read headlines and to make false assumptions when it comes to media is at play here, he's gotten people's hopes up Mm -hmm. as a result of this. And now it feels like it might be harder for him to go back or more disappointing. If he does go back and doesn't play, which to be completely honest with you guys, it, it has me struggling to understand exactly how it benefited Rafa to hold this press conference?
1: I know I'll tell you how why I think it benefited him. I think I said, like I said before, is a preemptive thing because otherwise there would be constant inquiries. I mean, his team would be fielding a great many inquiries. Well, what are you going to do? What's happening? What's with this? So it's almost better to just out there reminds you of how uh, the actor Jack Nicholson when he'd be going, when he'd be somewhere public and the paparazzi would be around, rather than have them trail him, he would just walk out of the restaurants. Hey guys, okay here. Here I am. Take your picture. Happy. Bye. <laughs> so, Nadal, it's like he, it's almost a, a, a good preemptive move to just, okay, now leave me alone and practice. And the other thing, what's interesting about this also, even our very dialogue, it reminds you of times when I think sometimes, how come sports sometimes gets covered like politics and politics sometimes gets covered like sports? You know, it's like this is all, we're all in what the realm, what uh, Pete Sampras called it once. I think I said this before it is all commentary. You know, it's like, we all, everyone in the field intends to play Wimbledon. Everybody needs to be careful. That's good. We'll all see. I mean, I know Nadal has this exceptional things going on. And so I guess we'll see. And he'll make his way to London. And you know, there'll be some um, some footage of him practicing at Orangi at the All-England Club. Oh, he is an honorary member.
0: Yeah, I guess the, the important thing is, at least from my perspective, is that he he is practicing, Uh, and that's the, that's the number one sign that he's in good shape to be on the court at, at this stage after the foot operation and with Wimbledon in, um, in about a week's time, uh, that's, what's more important than, you know, nothing he said actually, in my opinion was particularly new or, or interesting other than, you know, there was no, there was no disaster with the operation so far, so good, um you know, things are going well, right? But, you know, there's no uh, people do need to be careful about like Nadal says that he's playing because it's not really what he said. Um.
2: That, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I just think that let, let's game this out a little bit. Let's say he's practicing and he has a horrible setback and he has to withdraw from Wimbledon because he's just in massive pain with the foot or he can't go. Nobody's really going to be mad at him or, you know, nobody, people will be disappointed, but people aren't going to call him a liar or anything like that. Let's say he goes into the tournament and in the first, second, third round, he has to retire because the foot is just giving him too much trouble. That's okay, too. I mean, there's a famous uh, Keith Olbermann, the broadcaster, had a famous quip talking about a baseball player that was on injured reserve, and he said that he was listed as day-to-day, and Keith's line was, aren't we all? I mean, we're all just day to day, you know, grateful to wake up in the morning and, and live life and, and go about the plans that we laid out. So I, I, I see it as a good thing that he actually had a press conference. And if he says that he intends to play, I take it that he intends to play.
1: And we intend he to- definitely,
0: play. He definitely intends to play. I'm we just intend- saying, I'm just saying we could have, we could have known, we know, we knew that, of course he does.
1: Right, so I like, I like the Overman quote. That's a great one. Yeah, aren't we all? And then we'll see. And I think to me it's, <clears throat> so beyond that, I hope he does because I really, I enjoy, I think one of the fun things in tennis is seeing someone who, uh, <clears throat> who comes from one surface scale their game to the other. And Adal has done that quite successfully at Wimbledon, been to the finals yes. five times, won it twice. <clears throat> and he said very early in his career, I want to win Wimbledon. And he said that because he knew it was the most prestigious tournament in the sport and, and no tournament anymore dimensionalize his game to do well it now granted he hasn't been to the finals in 11 years semis the last two times but um it'll be interesting to see what he what he brings to Wimbledon this year and how he plays and how the points go I mean it's going to be watched very very closely each match and then we're going to be intrigued to see how the draw goes you Now, where he and Novak are and once again the whole draw question that we grappled with at Roland Garros
0: yeah, well, we can save a lot of those topics for the draw show, which we'll, uh, of course, get into next week with how Nadal has looked at Wimbledon as of late and, and what he needs to do to adjust to the surface. And, of course, Novak Djokovic uh, is back to being the favorite, heading into a major, which hasn't happened uh, at the year's first two slams, obviously, with him being absent from Australia. Uh, before we move on to Novak Djokovic and uh, a storyline that has emerged from, from New York, actually, in the U.S. Open, Um, I'm feeling pretty confident that Nadal is going to play at this time, Wimbledon. I think he's definitely going to try. Uh, I'm, I'm not yet fully confident that the foot is going to be a a non-issue, right? Is that kind of a fair middle ground to, to in uh, Joel?
1: Yeah, I would agree with you completely. It's like, I think he wants to intend to seek, to desire, to want to compete and play. And your point is spot on. I mean, it's not like the foot had done. I mean, Nadal's an incredible athlete, but recovery from these things and where the pain is, um, we don't know. And I think your assessment is spot on.
0: I guess what I'm saying is, I'd be shocked if he doesn't take the court. I wouldn't be shocked if the foot is an issue. Uh, without the without the uh, intervention of the powerful medicine that he was on
2: in Paris, yeah, and and you know maybe he changes his mind and he's midway through the tournament and doing really well and has a shot to win it and does the deadening again. Who knows? If there's any athlete or any human being who's capable of staying in the present and not looking too far ahead and just playing this point right here, it's Raphael Nadal.
0: Absolutely. Well, um, the career, not the career, the calendar uh, Grand Slam is in effect at the moment with Nadal having won the first two. Let's go to Djokovic. The US Open has said they are not going to petition or appeal to the US government and uh, their immigration uh, function to uh, try to get Novak an exemption of the current rules that require uh, that people are vaccinated to enter the country. Amy, what do you make of this?
2: This is a little bit different than the Nadal situation. The, the Truly, the news here is that the USTA has said that they're not going to sponsor him to get a special exemption to come into the country. That is something that I guess they could have advocated for or tried to get done but it doesn't surprise me that they didn't because you know they've asked all their players all their employees this was an organization that at the very beginning of the pandemic was very out front and saying don't even play to its members including recreational members all right on down the line like just stop playing because we're not sure if it's safe so they are more on the safety vaccine do follow CDC and FDA guidelines. They're they're very much like the rule book. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that they won't seek a special exemption. That being said, these rules are changing all the time. I mean, just within the last week or two, it you do not require um, getting a COVID test to enter or reenter the country as long as you're vaccinated. That has been a change that has had a huge impact. So these rules are changing all the time. And it could be that once we reach August, that rule could change too. So it's certainly still possible that Novak could play.
1: I also think the USTA not doing it, which I applaud and I understand, you look at the if you look at australia the united states as a circle and a pie this the, pie, the piece of pie that the australian open means i think to the australian sport and culture is a bigger piece to australia than the u.s open is to the american sporting scene i, I, I just think i just think the australian open is a is a more important part and i think the australian open felt the need to try to Create a situation that Novak could play, and I think the U.S. Open is yeah, we're a tennis tournament in the United States, and while it's a super big tournament in the United States, it's still tennis. And the American sporting culture has all sorts of things going on, like the NFL and Major League Baseball and college football. I mean, some other sports that are a bigger thing. So I think the, I think the USTA knew instantly. Yeah, our tennis term is not that big on the sporting culture radar. To, to warrant us even thinking about this kind of stuff. And then you see all the whole backlash it caused in Australia. And I think it would cause something different but similar in the United States. I just think if, if the USTA, and, and the USTA's belief, yeah, we have a tournament called the US Open. We don't necessarily, if Novak wants to come, he's welcome. We got a lot of other plot lines that make the US Open compelling for our fans and, and players.
2: But isn't it interesting, Gil and Joel, that it's the reverse of the Russian ban. So they, they are going to allow the Russians and the Belarusians to come well, that's in. a
1: different thing. And that that yeah. apply too. Well, I think that also, I think the whole the Wimbledon decision was with, involved with the British government. I don't think the American government is applying those same kind of things. We don't have a, a minister of sport. But
0: they are. But they are. It is the government preventing Novak from playing, so not the U.S. At, Open.
1: I'm looking at two different things here. I'm looking at two different things. I'm looking at a policy. I'm talking about the Russian players. I'm talking about the Russian players. The Russian ban yeah. in the Russian and Belarus ban in Wimbledon came from the British government in conjunction with the All England Club. There is no, there is no American Ministry of Sport that is where it says to the USTA, uh, please don't let Russian players play.
0: Oh, okay. I see. I, I see what you're saying.
1: I'm looking. I'm looking at two different uh, well- issues. The, the the American the American thing on Novak is not sports specific. It's not applied okay, to them. but
0: yeah. But I, I think I think the USTA and was with every other governing body in tennis that they just didn't and, and we're getting kind of off track here. That yeah. they, I, I don't think but I see what you're saying, Joel, that that perhaps the All England club would not have banned Russian and Belarusians had they not been pressured by the UK government, which is what they've said. And the US Open has no such force pushing them, it was up to the USTA to make their own decision.
2: Exactly, they could have advocated they could have taken a proactive approach and they said, now we're not going to do that.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, so I'm I, I have conflicts on on this topic because I work for U.S. Open Radio and I want to just disclose those. But I, I feel like from from the U.S. Open's perspective, uh, when it comes to you know their philosophy, and it has definitely been on the side of uh, we are going to adhere and go the extra mile um, to be on the safe side of of COVID when it comes to requiring all all employees to, to vaccinate. Um, I, I think all fans last year, right? I didn't go through that. Yes. Yes. All fans that that's, Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that, that has been the stance it would, it, I agree with you, Amy, it comes as no surprise that they are not sticking their neck out to create to, uh, advocate for a special exemption for, for a player. And from a PR perspective, uh, that would have definitely, Ben the, the move that would have raised more eyebrows than them doing nothing. Uh, because right now what they're doing is nothing. Uh, it, they did not ban Novak. They did not say Novak can't play. They did nothing. Um, and that is a safer and more down the middle and PR safe approach than we are going to actually have, you know, fight a battle here uh, to get Djokovic into the country.
2: What's interesting, and this is a total side note, uh, what about a player like Tennis Sangren, who is a US citizen, he's already in the country. He has not been vaccinated and has been very vocal about not wanting to be vaccinated. He, he plays actually pretty well in the US Open. Um, I don't know if he'd, he'd qualify, he probably would. Um, w- what about him?
1: Well, do you have to be vac- Do the play? Did the players have to be vaccinated last year's U.S. Open? I don't think so.
0: No, they didn't. I think the U.S. Open's mindset is: if you can show up in Flushing and your ranking qualifies to play, we are going to let you play. We are doing nothing here. If you can okay. just just show up, show okay. up, and you can play. But if you can't show up, then you know we're not going to intervene.
2: But if you're a fan show your vaccination card at the gate, like we, do, we all did last year, but Tennis Sangren doesn't have to.
1: Right. right. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's a very interesting uh, <clears throat> approach about towards fans, players. Fans have to be vaccinated, but players don't. Right. And then if you can't get in the country, like Novak because the US government, right. So it's got a certain, it's intriguing. Yeah. And that
2: policy could change. Who knows? That's right. This is all so fluid.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess um, evidently from just what we've seen in Europe, it, it seems that the U.S. is not, and I don't know this for a fact, it seems like the U.S. isn't in the majority, that they're in the minority to still have closed borders to unvaccinated uh, travelers. That's just what it seems like, because I don't see a lot of issues with, um, with other tournaments.
2: No, I had to show my vaccination card to, both to enter France and to order tickets for the French Open. This is but, why it's but, so but great. Novak. But what about Novak?
0: Why could, why could Novak cross the French border then?
2: I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea.
1: Because, yeah. That...
2: Maybe I had to show my vaccine card for my airline. I'm, I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah, I, I don't, But I definitely had to upload my vaccine card um, to get into the French Open as a fan. Right. I that, don't know,
0: right. I, and and th- that makes sense. A lot of tournaments have had this approach where the players are credentialed uh, on a level that is, you know, not uh, basically they're exempt from from the vaccination requirements. I think media and employees, by and large have, uh, or there have been many examples of media and employees, uh, that have had to adhere to a vaccination requirement, which plenty of people have taken an issue with. Um, yeah. All right. I think I think we've covered that sufficiently. Uh, we'll see if uh, <laughs> we'll see if there's more to come on this. Obviously, Djokovic now will uh, be asked about this, and and we'll see what he has to say, and that will probably create uh, its own news cycle. So. Uh, we'll await that. Are we ready to move on to uh, to Roger?
2: Well, did you want to Love discuss- it. Love effort? to talk about Roger. Did you discuss,
1: yes. By the way, uh, Novak, six-time Wimbledon champ. We can. We'll discuss this more when the tournament. Well, comes-
0: it's the draw. It's the draw preview, Joel. We're
1: All not. Right. Okay. Hasn't lost there in five years.
2: I have so much to say about. Both Djokovic and Nadal on the surface of grass. I, I would love to talk about the draw show coming right, we'll up. We'll talk
1: about that when the draw. No worries. Next week.
0: Next week right. we will we will do it. Uh, okay, Roger. Let's start with Joel. Uh, you did a piece recently that I want to ask you about. Uh, you read this book, uh, "The Last Days of of Roger Federer." Tell us about reading this book, uh, what it was about, and and how it relates to Federer.
1: It's very interesting the writer Jeff Dyer is a significant literary writer he's written at least 15 I think 18 books Wow, almost as many as our guys have won slams I mean he's very prominent writer and he he writes in a very self-reflective way but this book it's not so much it's, it's about Federer in a way but it's really about endings about how things finish Jeff is now in his 60s he um he's contemplating how various writers artists musicians what it's like as they reach the end of their, of their days and their creation cycle. Not necessarily their, their death, but their, the, when, how it looks for the philosopher Nietzsche. And Federer is kind of this uh, motif. And I, I interviewed Jeff, we met at a park in Santa Monica and, he, and he's very thoughtful and uh, he plays tennis and we talked about this. But Federer, Federer is kind of the redemptive person. For a lot of artists and writers, the end, the creativity crashes you're not doing as well you're not as healthy or or things just happen Federer almost kind of defies some of that and also some some artists it has to do with reputation you know what people are thinking about their work i mean there's a lot of in in the arts world arts literature it's amazing how fashion goes in and out how certain writers aren't considered important but Federer and tennis is performance so Federer's grand achievements and his kind of uh, age-defying late career excellence is kind of the um you know the sucker of this book and the writer notes that it's interesting a lot of the uh the other characters go by their last names but he always he res- he enjoys calling roger and it's this whole uh coziness with roger that he so likes
2: i think that's true of all the big three sometimes i find myself even in my writing and because i write for some blogs that are less adherence to certain you know standard operating procedures i'm able to just use rafa or novak and i i agree with you joel that these three have sort of crossed into that single name iconic status but i also you know as i get older yes, that that is happening. Um, I find that certain areas of my brain are more creative than they used to be. So it's interesting that, um, the writer would find that true of Federer and, and hold him up as an example of how aging in many ways can, can be a good thing.
1: Well, he worships Federer. A lot of, I, I, i talked, I know a fair amount of, uh, writers who are non they're not journalists so they're not covering the sport frequently like we are but when they do uh when they do um they um they tend to drift towards fetter because he's the most like jeff told me look at this he's beautiful and he's um functional it's it's all put together you can be you can play beautifully and win and and mm-hmm. they love that i always find that interesting um intriguing it's intriguing for me kind of the whole swooning around Feder. And it's different than Nadal and Djokovic. Different kind of swooning. Federer is the the ballerina, the baryshnikov like player who who moves and inspires such such a swoon, as if he invented tennis. <laughs> and I find it's part of me, the part of me that's a little that I kind of resist that a little bit, a little bit. I love Roger Federer too, but you know I can hit a slice backhand and a Thompson backhand the same rally. I know what a drop shot approach shot is. You know it's like. It's just it's just funny but but the part about creation and and Feder and his longevity doing it because some artists and tennis players too tend to be the the flash in the pan and that Rogers been able to do it so well for so long is just so captivating I mean I I believe Gil, is uh, not playing Wimbledon for the first time since you were born he, had, he hasn't missed Wimbledon since 98
0: yes that so that's correct
1: your whole yes. life Rodgers yeah has always played Wimbledon
0: yeah. yeah. Really interesting. Yep.
1: Pretty interesting. So so this book is very um, I, I would suggest people reading it. I think it's very engaging, but it's kind of it's not gonna be just about why Roger's forehand and serve are so great. It's gonna be something else. And Roger's kind of a again, kind of this uh luminescent, luminescent deity over it.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a gravity and a um an infectiousness to the the fetter aesthetic uh that i think the other two have but federer is at another level in that area uh, which is why i think a lot of uh, a lot of people who maybe don't even see the game as well can see the game better when federer is playing it uh because i think there's a certain obviousness to to some things that he's doing on the court um versus some some subtlety uh perhaps that goes lost that might be a little bit more important in the game of games of Djokovic and, and Nadal
1: well I think I, I the way I look at it Feder Nadal can grab people even if they don't know tennis Federer does it with the brilliance in the movement Nadal right. does
0: Nadal's the, not subtle really so I would say that.
1: that the one who's subtle the one who's the real player's player is Novak Novak is the one it's like if you don't know tennis you think well what's going on here he seems pretty steady he's Moving, but he is—he is the play. He's so incredibly efficient. It reminds me again of uh, of Chris Everett in some ways. It's like, what's going on here? They just seem to be getting balls, and and it's 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 like uh, the thing I remind somebody told me about Everett. Why why run when you can be there? And there's this whole efficiency Novak brings that's so sustainable, and that's a little less discernible than. Um, and I think the the people I know who then like Novak who don't know tennis that well. What they admire is his, his grit and his effort and where he comes from. They might not know as much about the tennis nuance, and that's okay.
0: I played with someone yesterday who literally said, um, d- do you feel like Novak is defensive? And I was like, no, he, he's not at all. It, it's, just, it's not one shot as much as it is many and every. Uh, and that's the difference. Nadal has his forehand and Federer has his forehand and his serve. And, well, actually, Federer has this entire offensive attack kind of thing going on. But uh, Djokovic is not a defensive player at all. He controls you. He dictates. But still, he has this reputation, right? A false reputation of, wait, well, he, he just plays defense, neutral. Knows. No,
1: it's just we don't know the game. I mean, I think right. I, I wrote this recently. You play Federer, I think the sense when I've talked to players and seen it, <clears> he <throat> becomes sort of a witness to genius. It's like, wow, you're, they're playing this guy and, they say, and he hits his, such this wide array, and it becomes, wow, I'll be able to tell my grandchildren I was beaten. And no one comes off the court having the feeling their butt was kicked by Federer. They've just been kind of all these great shots. Nadal, you compete. You know, you've competed and you've been in the arena. And Novak, it's kind of clinical in a good way. You're just, you're right. He's, he's nothing to, he's not defensive. He can be defensive, but he's not defensive.
2: I think Novak is of the three, although Nadal's really good at this too, but Novak with with ease and with with a sleight of hand almost is the one that can turn defense to offense without you even realizing what's happened. So in other words, he's pushed deep in the court. He's off the court. He's Gumby stretched. And the ball that comes back is deep, the depth, and and therefore neutralized. And then within the next stroke, he is actually dictating and on the offense. And that happens repeatedly. So I do think he's defensive, but perhaps the one that um, most artfully changes defense to offense without you even realizing it.
1: I love the sleight of hand aspect. That's right. So since you don't realize it, it's hard to see, and that's and that and that's true for those of us who watch the game closely. So if people are coming to tennis to events like Wimbledon or Roland Garros or the U.S. Open, who don't follow tennis frequently, and then they see, it, say, well, what's what's going on here? What's really occurring? And we're seeing the micro shifts. Nadal, the transition is a little more obvious and visceral, because between his court positioning and his strokes, and he's he's been thrust thrown into one corner, and then he suddenly turns the tables on the point.
0: And it happens in less shots. Like right. for Nadal, it, it could be a one shot. He's in a defensive position. He's got so much strength from these positions that it's offense. It's one shot. Novak, as you alluded to Amy, it might be two or three. Um, and, you know, uh, let's not forget the art of not missing and not making mistakes. I mean, it's just, it's not as sexy, but it decides probably 90%, 95% of tennis matches played in the world on across all levels probably decided by who messes up less, uh, then you have the pros and it's a different thing. And some matches are still decided by that. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, tennis really is, if you look at the numbers at any level, tennis is a sport that really has to do with errors. Totally. Um, but you know what, a lot of sports are that way. And that's why at their core, like, like baseball, um, that's why the expression defense wins championships. But, um,
0: but we don't know if that's true. It's just something that people right. like to say.
1: We're
2: searching, like I've said before, though, we're
1: searching for a language that transcends such rigidity as defense and offense, which in the team sports, it's a little more obvious because the parts of the court, whether it's soccer or basketball, now we're on defense, now we're on offense. Tennis is something else because you're both control, seeking to control this rectangle. And it's, um, it's not as much defense... Offense, the application of pressure—that's—and the application of pressure, whether it's consistency, depth—that's really what the game is about in tennis. That then elicits errors.
0: Okay, this was a good aside, but I'm going to get the train back on the tracks. Uh, Federer, <laughs> um, yeah, Federer did an interview, and he reiterated his intention to play Basel and Laver Cup. Amy, there was an interesting comment that that you mentioned to us that he uh, he feels that th- those tournaments are also well timed with the off season. It's right before the off season. Uh, why why is that convenient for Roger?
2: Well, he he didn't say it was convenient. The quote was something like, um, "and then it's the end of the season anyway." So it, it was almost like if this point in my rehabilitation were in December or January when I was gearing up for the year, then the implication was that he would just go ahead and play the entire year. So, but the the key takeaway here, Gil, is that Roger Federer is not retiring. And I'll never forget when, when, um, Wimbledon last year and he said look I I gotta shut it down I gotta have surgery and he said but I'm not retiring I'm not going to close the door just yet and everyone came out and said Roger's done he's done he's done he's done and I said no I came on this podcast and I said Roger Federer is not retiring that's not what he said just listen to him well tennis.com took that clip and, and they ran with it as a, as a, as a tease for our podcast. Then Mitch Michaels had me on and I repeated it. And it was like, Amy Lundy says, Roger Federer is not retiring. No, Roger Federer said Roger Federer wasn't retiring. And he's repeated that because he's talking about gearing up for 2023.
1: Well, and Federer, he would, he would manage his message, you know, timing. So it makes all these guys good. And, Header is always is impeccable with his timing about how he manages his announcements and his communications and, and his training and his this and the whole thing. I mean, um, I, I didn't think he was retiring. I'm part Me of neither. I didn't Me think the next three of us. It's good. I'm glad, that's, that's, I love how your, what you said then got replayed. And I think the whole, again, this gets the whole thing that I, um, let's cover sports. I don't like seeing sports always covered like politics. And you came out, Amy, with the, the proper thing. This is what he said. Here's what right. he said. Here's what he means onward and the whole the whole conjecture thing the whole vulture like thing retiring contending it's like okay so Roger Federer he's in he's rehabilitating himself he's seeking to practice he's intending another intender he's probably going to be careful and uh okay and so then in that sense he's not given us that much to talk about because again we cover performance we cover athletes doing things not just saying things and so in a way it's what I'm uh what I'm sad about not being able to see Federer at Willman for the first time in 20 plus years is how much fun it is to watch him play. I talked about what it's like to see the, the clay guy go to grass. Well, how about the grass guy on grass? That's really fun too. And even last year in uh, what, five, uh, five matches got to the quarters.
0: Yeah, uh, he, he got, he was in the quarters and. Tough I mean, one he,
1: early with Manorino. That was a tough one. And still. Might, uh, right.
0: Might've gotten a little lucky with Manorino getting injured in that one.
1: I went through this with Jimmy Connors when he was in his late thir- mid late thirties. Watching the genius go through the late career problem solving has its own kind of appeal. Mm-hmm. You know, the Manarino that would have been a straight setter for him twelve years ago is now a little bit of a of a um, upper division calculus class.
2: Although Manarino can give anyone fits, um, even Nadal. But um, what's interesting is that we've talked about this before, Joel. That The desire to retire Roger Federer and it's not just him it's it's all the greats is so strong by a certain segment of the population that the topic of Roger Federer's retirement has been a topic of discussion in the media among fans among people for probably 10 years now
1: right
2: so um, my question is why? Just why?
1: I'll tell you why, as the, old, as the elder of this show. Okay. I think when people, when people want people to retire because they don't wish to see them in the decline because that forces us to face our own mortality. If Superman is, is, is losing in the quarters of the second round, what's that say about me? I, pres- I wish to preserve my memory of him looking great, a, a, a common one brought up by the American media. The great baseball player, Willie Mays, was the greatest baseball player in the 50s and 60s. And then in the 70s, he was in a World Series, and he, he, he misplayed a, a fly ball. And it's like, oh my, how could we see that? What did, you know, It's just like witnessing the, the decline. Now, granted, this will happen to us all. And that's one of the things that, this will happen to us all. It's, it's, but I think, and there was a long when there was as money in sports and there were other careers that athletes wanted to go on, this, I'm going back to the 60s and 70s, there was this notion, go out on top, go out on top. Pete Sampras, that ended up happening, but mostly that doesn't and that's okay too. But Billie Jean King in 1975 announced, this will be my last Wimbledon singles or, or maybe she said it after she won, she won. And then she regretted that. A year later, she was still beating Everton Navratilova in practice on grass. She probably could have won Wimbledon singles but she would go out on top and she was only playing doubles. And there was, there are a number of athletes. And also I think even if you look demographically, this is a little granular, there was a whole other youth emphasis, baby boomers don't trust anyone over 30, all this kind of stuff was going on about going out on top in a glorious way, like the Beatles or whatever. And now, now I think what happened as baby boomers aged, as people began to accept hey, wait a second, that's, that's, that's okay. I mean, that's fine. I mean, it was a big deal when Ronald Reagan was 70 and got elected president. Now we have a president who got, he was, what, 78 when he was elected. It's just a different view towards aging, but people, I don't want to see Roger struggle.
2: Okay, so that makes total sense. And I'm so glad that we had this conversation to refresh my memory. I guess I am truly an eternal optimist because when I see Roger Federer even beat you know a player like uh Ilya ivashka or something like that i think oh my god look at what he's capable of at his age if he can do it that gives me hope for myself so it, it's maybe it's just a different worldview
1: right but i think but i think the retiring it's like i remember when someone uh, a player who'd been very good was not playing well as he sunk down the ranks and someone said to me oh i was watching him play and he was losing i said he goes it was embarrassing i go did you feel embarrassed did you feel embarrassed? Why were you embarrassed? I mean, let him, in, let him do it. And particularly, this isn't a team sport. In a team sport, I kind of get it because at a certain point, you're not contributing to us. You're dragging our performance down because you can't do X, Y, and Z. We can't even let you play a few minutes in the game. But this is an individual sport. He's not taken away from anyone. So, and, and so um, why not? But yeah, that retirement impulse is very, very interesting.
2: Gil, what's your take as the youngest?
0: My, my take is to, is to bring this, uh, you know, this, the, I love the, the, the philosophical angles here they're great. I'm going to go a different direction, not to, not to refute them at all, but the reason I thought the, her, the reaction to the her match, which was so visceral was silly and, and off base is because Roger still hasn't started losing in a, in a way that is going to discourage him. Uh, that never happened. That has not happened yet. Uh, you look at him making the Wimbledon quarterfinal, which it turns out was on a bum knee. Uh, the major before, he played three rounds in Paris, won all three matches, <laughs> and decided to withdraw, which we had our debates about. Uh, before then, he made the semifinals in Australia, and nearly took a set off of Djokovic. Again, completely injured uh, throughout that event and made the semis. Uh, these are his last three majors. Uh, okay, uh, US Open quarter final 2019. Was that when he lost to Dimitrov? That was kind of a surprising loss. He's in the quarters. One major before that, match point, Wimbledon final. Like, when did Roger start losing to the extent that he's going to be like, you know what, uh, I think it's my time. I I don't think I can compete to the level that I want to. When did that happen? It never happened. It hasn't happened yet.
2: Yes. I love that, Gil. So it's like he may not even know what his upper limits are, what he's capable of until he tests it. And it hasn't been appropriately tested yet. I love that take.
1: It's usually more physical than results. The physical will will trigger the results and then you'll Mm -hmm. see.
0: Yeah. All right. This uh, This was fun. We... We hit all three, a lot to talk about, and uh, we'll uh, get back together for the Wimbledon Draw Show next week. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We'll see you next time on the next episode of three.